Welcome to Savage. I'm your host, Kelsey Kenry, CEO, wife, and mom of three. This is where you find the aligned strategy and mindset shifts to unleash your power, unlock your freedom, and step into your full potential as a CEO. Every episode is full of tough love and hard truths with a side of tactical guidance to expand your success. You ready? Let's do the damn thing. was kind of this eye-opening experience, to be honest, of being like, wow, I do not want to waste my life in here. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be in here for the rest of my life in and out. So I think that was a huge push. Welcome to the Bravehearted Podcast, where we are changing the way you get inspiration by allowing you to hear resilience and victory in hard stories. We discuss new methods on handling life situations so you can show up confidently in your life. We are different because instead of just giving you inspiration through stories, we give you actionable tools to make the change that you want to make. Let's live bravely today. All right, guys, welcome to episode 14 of the Bravehearted Podcast. I am Mindy Mercurio, career guru and business coach, helping women all over the world who are exhausted find their purpose. We have Kelsey Kinry with us. Kelsey, introduce yourself. Hi, guys. Welcome to episode number 14. Is this 14? It is. Oh, my gosh. It's crazy. So we have Lindsay Hall here with us today, and I'm going to let her tell us more about her. But in case you guys don't know or don't remember if this is your first time listening in, I am a personal development coach and speaker working with women all over the world to find their confidence, and live bravely. I love working with moms, especially who are stuck in the rut that is motherhood and finding who we are after children. So Lindsay, welcome. Thanks for being here with us. Hi, thanks for having me on. So lovely to be here. So can we start by, can you just, for anybody that has no idea who you are, who are you now? And give us a little synopsis. Yeah, thanks. So um, my name is Lindsay Hall. I am the author behind the award-winning I Haven't Shaved in Six Weeks.com blog, which I still never thought I would be saying six years after I started it. Uh, But I am an eating disorder recovery blogger, writer, speaker as well. I started my blog after a six-week journey in inpatient residential rehab for anorexia and the whole eating disorder cycle, as I like to call it. And really at that time in my life in 2014, when I was about to go to treatment, I couldn't find anything on the internet that was really talking about the nitty gritty of what it's going to be like to actually go to residential rehab. Like I had no sources. All I could find was clinical blog posts and like pretty boring stuff on the internet. And I wanted to really give back to people what it's actually like. Like what's the food going to be like? What are the other women like in there? What do you do every day? You know, like I just went in totally blind. And so one of the things of course that came up is when I got there, they took my razor away. Cause obviously like having razors in that kind of facility is probably not a great idea for other patients who are struggling with self-harm or something. And so I thought to myself, Oh, like I would have liked to have known that. And so 
afterwards, once I was done and in, in, in my recovery process, I started it as more of like a nine short stories and on residential treatment. And from there, I've just been able to really grow this uh, really fun part of my career where I get to talk about, you know, uh, eating disorders and all of their little ways of manifesting in our lives on diet culture. And then of course, alcohol and eating disorders as well, which is what I've really started moving into um, in the last couple of years. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I, I was curious as to where the, cause I haven't had a chance to read the history of your blog. Um, I've read a few um, blogs recently, but I was curious as to where the name came from. And so that's really interesting that that's, you know, kind of what happened is you ended up in rehab and not able to use that razor and then getting it taken away from you. That's, um, that's really interesting. Very cool. Yeah. I think I just, you know, I really wanted to humanize it. And it's so it started as just trying to have these nine short stories on humanizing the other women that are, because mine was an all female facility. And so I wanted to humanize our experiences in there. And that really, at the end of the day, we're all just women. A lot of us were in our careers. A lot of us had families. A lot of us were mothers, or I wasn't at the time, but I was definitely, I had to leave my career to come and do treatment. And I just wanted to humanize that aspect of it. So that's really where it all started. And, and now it's taken all these different fun spider webs throughout the years. And now it ends up on where I'm on podcasts like this. <laughs> and inspiring women and people across the world. That's incredible. So talk to us about how this all, you know, started. Like take us back to the very beginning, like, you know, where your eating disorder started and not, you know, your struggle there. Yeah, I like to say that I have a pretty traditional eating disorder story. I think I fit into the masses in a lot of ways. Um, I grew up in, I was a very petite person. And I think as a child, that was kind of my label. You know, it's kind of like that thing I always say where teachers would line you up shortest to tallest, and I was always the shortest. And I think as a child, you don't, and it's nobody's fault. It's just that adults don't realize that the way that they label you, if you're labeled that over and over and over again, it becomes an identity. And so as a child, I, I was the small one. I wasn't the smartest one. I wasn't the prettiest one. I wasn't the most athletic girl, but I was really small. And everyone commented on it throughout my entire childhood. So I think it became this this awareness that that was what made me special or what I thought made me special then. And so when I got into high school and went through puberty, as everybody does, and started kind of growing into some of the same sizes and, 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 and height as some of my other female friends, there was this sense of kind of this loss of identity at that time of like, well, who am I if I'm not that? And I, I would say that's probably where the eating disorder started manifesting in that time period. You know, I always say nobody wakes up with anorexia or bulimia or any of these things. It's, it's right. a slow, gradual process that just occurs over time. Otherwise, I mean, it's not like anyone would choose to have that the same way no one would choose to have an opiate addiction or, or alcohol addiction. And, um, and so in high school, it kind of started there where I started recognizing things. And of course, I grew up in a world where my mother and her friends were talking about diets and weight as a child. I mean, it was just so ingrained. My own friends were talking about it by the time we were 16 and 17. That, and I think diet culture at that time was completely 
there was no backlash to it yet, which now I think in 2020, we're having a lot more backlash to it and a lot more people that are standing up saying this is, this is wrong. But at that time, it was kind of ferocity of diet culture talk. And so it started there. And then over the next eight years, I think grief is a huge part of my story. My best friend died when I was 18, a uh, total freak accident. It was my first week of college and it was his first week of college. And uh, we'd been friends since we were little kids. And he, when he died, it really, you know, our culture is very, we have a hard time with grief. Um, and at 18, I really, really didn't know how to handle something so tragic. And you're kind of given this three week period, right? Where you're allowed to grieve openly. And then our culture kind of asks that you tone it down after that, <laughs> or maybe not talk about it so much. Yeah. Um, otherwise you're messed up or, or you need to move past it. And, and without recognizing that grief is like a forever process and that it's part of the human condition, but I didn't know how to handle it. So I really went into my eating disorder. And that's where I always say is, is kind of, that was the turning point. I was already disordered eating. And then by that point, it just kind of moved into a full blown eating disorder to cope with that kind of pain. And, um, it, it just over the years, you know, I always say that I had the travel bug because I kept thinking if I moved places, it would change, it would save me. If I moved to Europe, it would save me. If I moved to New York, it would save me. And then by my eighth year, when I was 24, it was just to a point where it became unmanageable. Like, I don't say that I have any huge rock bottom moment. I just think that at some point, enough of my friends and my family had started to finally understand that this was affecting me on a daily basis. And I couldn't, I couldn't handle my life anymore. I was a hot mess and I was like drinking all the time. And I, it was, it, I was just actively obvious that there were things going on and I don't like to go too far into like symptoms and stuff like that. Cause you know, I don't like to, I don't want to make, I think everyone's eating disorder manifest in different ways, but mine was really manifesting in over-exercise and restriction. So at some point, my parents stepped in and I'm always really thankful because I never thought I was sick enough to get help, which is a huge thing with eating disorders. Mm. And so I didn't think I was sick enough to ask for help. And uh, finally, when my parents like stepped in and were like, hey, we're like, you're, we're done. Like you need, you, you've got to do something. I just kind of acquiesced and was like, yeah, okay. I was ready. I just mm. needed somebody else to help me get there. Wow. So much to unpack right there. Like so many things that you said that just in my mind kind of like running. So the first thing that I like want to touch on is like how careful we have to be with our words and labels when, you know, we're speaking to other people, because something that I relate to is I was always the tall, lanky one when I was a kid. So as opposed to being the short, petite one, I was the one on the other side. Um, and that's what I got labeled as um, in school. And I kind of, you know, I saw the same things growing up. So I saw, you know, my mom engrossed in that diet culture and, you know, snack wells around the house and what's the next new diet that's coming out. You know, everybody's trying it. So I think that's just a great reminder to everybody listening is, you know, to be careful with what you say and, and how you say it around people because you really don't know how that can affect somebody going forward, right? Yeah, and especially with children mm -hmm. because we're so susceptible to whatever, how people are identifying us, especially adults. So if you have adults identifying you as one thing, it just felt like, for me, I remember feeling this intense. And I, and I, I, I read my diaries now. I kept a lot of diaries, which has mm -hmm. been really helpful in my recovery process of understanding where things got skewed for me is that I started seeing in my writing at 14 and 15 and 16, this kind of confusion around like, if I gain weight or if I put on weight, 
I will know, like everybody will notice it, you know, like mm-hmm. a feeling like that was how people noticed me. And so I didn't want to look any different. I, I like forever perpetually wanted to look like I was 14 almost, which is so, isn't that weird? A lot of us are always trying to like thrive back into our like 17 year old bodies. And it's like, that's not even tangible. And yet diet culture has made it feel like we're always trying to get back to that high school body, which is ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And what a gift to have, you know, those those diaries that you can look back on and reflect on. Like, you know, so many people don't have that ability because they didn't keep those things. So having that and being able to use that in your recovery is awesome. So, you know, something else I heard you talking about was alcohol. So talk to me about that and, you know, when that started, how that started and how that affected you. Yeah, alcohol, that's been my big thing recently and what I really enjoy writing about a lot. I'm kind of in this, you know, recovery, you get in recovery for one thing, right? And then it, it leads you to all this other recovery that maybe you didn't realize you needed. Yeah. And at the time, it was kind of like, I'm going to go in, cure my anorexia, because that's all it is, and move on. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's not how it's ever been, and nothing is ever cured. I think I live with an eating disorder for the rest of my life. It's just managing it and making sure that I'm on top of it and watching my actions and if I'm manipulating myself, et cetera. And one of the things that came out of it was that when I got out of treatment, I was looking around me and I wanted to have a normal life, right? Because at that point, I had kind of, I wasn't socializing the same way anymore. I hadn't been going out with my friends. I, I was isolating because I was, you know, just in my eating disorder. And all I wanted to ever do was be at the gym. I didn't want to be anywhere else. And it was just, it was coming out of that was kind of this like awareness that I had no hobbies or skills because I had mostly just been in my eating disorder. Mm. And so when I came back in to like be with my friends and, and to kind of go back to like what felt like quote freedom, I started drinking like with my friends because that's what we were all doing. It was happy hours and it was work events and it was networking events. And, you know, alcohol is a huge part of this culture Mm -hmm. and it's at everything. Everything is centered around alcohol. Oftentimes I feel like I hear people say if they're at events that don't have alcohol, they're complaining that there's no alcohol there. Like it's just so ingrained as part of our culture that that was kind of what I was like, okay, well, I guess this is freedom to party freely, you know, like quote, quote. And so I started partying and I was partying, especially in New York. New York's a pretty fast moving place where there's a bar on every corner pretty much. And I was kind of partying and doing et cetera, et cetera. And I think it just over time, and it's really been over the last couple years and really over the last like year Mm -hmm. that I've started to like realize I'm just replacing one cope, like one mechanism for me just copping out with another. And it's not that I think I'm an alcoholic. I don't even know if I believe in that word, but I don't think I have an alcohol addiction, but I think I numb out the exact same way that I was numbing out with an eating disorder. And I was finding myself more and more dependent on this kind of two glasses of wine a day, like happy hour as the only way to, of knowing how to connect with my friends, like, et cetera. And I just finally realized like what I want out of my recovery is not to just have another dependence on something else mm-hmm. and to socialize and to like connect with humans in this world. And so it's, I've really been pushing this like writing and this exploration in myself on like how to be sober <laughs> and how to like actually really stop drinking when you're when you don't feel like you're an alcoholic but feel like you have a growing dependence on it and mm. so it's been a really interesting transition over the last few months for that that I've really quit drinking and so it's been, yeah, it's been a transition I'm learning even more about myself the second time around it feels like than the first 
That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool because I feel like, number one, I feel like I strongly believe that we are meant to forever learn and grow. Like that's what that's what we were put here to do. And I relate to you in a lot of ways because I had drug and alcohol problem, I would say. And I, uh, you know, ended up my, I did have a rock bottom. My rock bottom ended in the medical unit of a jail in a suicide suit, um, which was my third arrest. Mm -hmm. So I understand in something that you said about addiction and alcoholism specifically was about how you don't necessarily know if you believe in the word alcoholic. And that kind of struck me because when I so I didn't drink. I got into a program and I was sober. I didn't drink for a year. Now I might drink like three times a year, if that. Like mm. I could I could not drink ever again. It doesn't, I don't care. But I remember going to AA and like, I know, and I think AA is a wonderful program. I know that it helps so many people. I have nothing bad to say about AA. But the problem was, is when I found myself in AA, I'm like, something's still missing here. Like, I understand taking away the alcohol, but like, don't you guys realize, or is it just me that like, I was drinking to numb a lot of things. So what, why was, why was I doing that? And so for me, it was like, I made the promise to myself, like, if I cannot drink like a quote unquote normal person, then I won't drink. But for me, it was like, when I was drinking to numb, that looks so much different. Like I think the last time, the last time I drank, I went to New York with Eric. We went to a Ben and Jerry's event. I had two drinks. That was it. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't even buzzed. And that was it. I didn't drink anymore. And so it's interesting because I would say at one time I was like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I have, I'm a binge drinker. I have all these problems. But then I went through therapy And when I realized, okay, I'm numbing something here, there's something underneath here. And when I dealt with that, it wasn't actually the alcohol. So when you say that about like being an alcoholic, it's just something that's a really big like thought and feeling of mine is I'm like, most of the time, I won't say the alcohol is not the problem, but it's like, what's underneath that? Yeah. And actually it's funny that you're saying that. I don't know if you've heard of Holly Whitaker. She's at Holly on, um, at Holly on Instagram. And I shamelessly plug her because she has really, really helped me in my journey. She just released a book called Quit Like a Woman. Uh Um, And it's her journey with alcohol as well and quitting alcohol. And she really goes into like AA. She, She also acknowledges that they've helped many, many people. But she goes into that same, almost exactly what you're saying. And this whole concept of like, it's not about necessarily the alcohol. A lot of us are not alcoholics, but a lot of us are numbing out and like getting ourselves in really bad dependency on alcohol because the marketing and the PR around alcohol companies is so strong. And I mean, look at how many Budweiser's and all these billboards that we see. It's just thrown down our throats and it's a legal drug. It's the only really legal drug that we have. And it's just like, it's, that's a multi-billion dollar industry that has a lot of advertising and has been pushing it since the dawn of time, pretty much. It's like cigarettes were back in like the, you know, forties or whatever, the thirties and forties. And I think alcohol is having a movement now. I really do think that more and more people are kind of jumping on this whole sober curious train. 
mm-hmm. which is the, I don't know if you've heard of that like movement recently, mm-hmm. but it's, it's the sober curious train where I feel like more and more people are trying to step away from alcohol to see like, Hey, how much of like, how much of this is it serving me? Because what I find with alcohol is that like, I was starting what I've found in sobriety thus far, which is what's really changing my relationship with alcohol is like how much more shit I get done on like a daily basis because I'm not drinking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm not cloudy when I wake up in the morning. And again, it's not like I'm binge drinking and blacking out and being outrageous. It's that I was drinking like two glasses of wine, five to six nights a week. And for my body size and for my hikes, I'm very short. That's a lot of alcohol for my body to take. And I was still waking up kind of cloudy. I was going to bed. You know, once I've had one drink, I'm kind of (laughs) useless. Like once I've had a drink, I'm just kind of like, eh, like I just want to mellow and not think. And it's actually quite a depressant overall too. So my mood was feeling very affected. And yeah, it's just been a really interesting journey recently. I have felt better sober and like more clear-headed than I have felt in years. And it's just been, it's yeah, it's just a growing process. I keep writing about it because I'm just finding, it's just been interesting. But I too feel like you. I don't know that I necessarily ever don't want to have a drink again. And I don't really abide by the AA feeling of like, I think for some people that might be what gets them what they need. And I totally right. respect that. Uh, For me, it's not that I think I can ever go without a drink again. It's that I don't want to feel like I need a drink to do certain things. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And you said something really important too, that like a a lot of important things, but like the first thing that I want to touch on is how normalized drinking is. So it's like, it's this weird thing because we have like marijuana and drugs and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, obviously marijuana is coming around, which, which I think mm-hmm. it should be legalized, but that's a different, yeah. <laughs> different Agreed. topic, different day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like you, you think about hard drugs and it's like, people are like, oh my gosh, she's snorting cocaine. Like that was my, that was my big drug of choice. Like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, she's doing that. And like, you know, it's destroying you and all this stuff. And I'm like, but you drink every single night. And that's okay because it's legal. Like the fact that alcohol is so normalized, I think it enables people to continue to numb themselves just like drugs do. But since it's normal, since it's legal, that's okay. And I'm like, this, this is twisted because it's, there's two things that are doing the same thing, which leads me into my next point that you brought up. And it made me think of it when you said you were drinking wine every night. I have, so I love working with moms. So I have two small children and um, obviously have a business. And so I really pride myself on showing women that like you serve a purpose outside motherhood. And the whole thing about moms, like drinking wine at night, like that Mommy whole, culture. I struggle with that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm careful with my words because I understand that a lot of it, you know, comes from being a mom and like you're exhausted and, but it's hard because they don't realize again, that it is a numbing thing that it's like, you're overwhelmed and you're exhausted. And so you, then you have this wine. And then like you said, the next day, you're not as productive. You're not as capable as a person or a mom, or if you're working, because you continue to repeat that cycle. But again, it's just normalized. So it made me think of that when you were talking about drinking every single night and how it's it's not so much about 
uh, I was the binge drinker that, that blacked out, <laughs> like that mm-hmm. was my thing. And so it's not so much about the, the quality, but it's the reasoning behind, like, why are you drinking? Yep. yep. I totally a hundred percent agree. And I think that whole, the whole wine, like mommy wine culture has gotten so exploited recently. Cause how often are you seeing stuff on like, you know, when you see those napkins, like monogram napkins, it's like mommy, mommy wine time, you know, like there's all this like marketing that's being yes. pushed on it. And yeah. Holly actually comments on that in her book too. And it really like opened up my eyes as well. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I mean, there is just so much PR behind it, especially wine is just surged in America with the Americans' consumptions of wine. And it's mostly white. It's mostly Caucasian females is the targeted demographic and the targeted audience for a lot of this. And mm-hmm. it makes total sense because the way that I justified it was that I was like, well, I drink wine. It's not like I'm sitting there binge drinking tequila on a Monday, you know? And I, it just took me a really long time to finally admit to myself, like, okay, so I worked this hard to get over an eating or to not get over, but to start getting past an eating disorder only to then what start taking another drug. And I just like, it wasn't aligning anymore with like, like, I'll never forget, like about a year and a half ago, I, I gave a panel speech on eating disorders and I was hung over as hell. And I remember sitting there on that panel thinking to myself, like, this is not aligning with like my ethos. Like whatever I'm doing here does not like align. Like, cause I'm talking about presence and being in recovery, which is all about being mindful and like trying to be aware of your one very short life that you get on this planet. And I'm hung over, like trying to like say this. And I was just like, it's just not working anymore for me. <laughs> like, And so I've, it's, it's, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a big journey, but I think that's part of recovery is just, you start peeling back the onion, so to speak. And, and once you've started peeling it, there's just so many layers to get through. And I, that's why I have no qualms talking about it because I think this has all been a process and, and how could I have known then what I feel now? It just has all kind of unlayered itself over time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to, that was awesome. Um, you know, so, but let's go back to like recovery. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, your parents said, Hey, there's something wrong. You know, you need to get treatment. You said, yep, you're totally right. You think that you're just going in to deal with like your anorexia. And so you realize that you're not there just to deal with your anorexia. Talk us through, you know, what you went through when you went to recovery. What are some of the roadblocks you ran into? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I'd be lying. And I think most people that go into eating disorder treatment probably feel a little bit this way. I went in thinking that I would actually just lose more weight uh, because I would finally be monitored on my eating. So, you know, when you're in this cycle is what I call it. Nobody's ever just, just anorexic. <laughs> like you can't restrict like that and not end up like binge eating or not end up like purging, it all works together. My main symptom was restriction, but I was living in this horrendous cycle of like binging, purging. It was just a constant battle, you know, over exercising to get rid of the binging and binging to make up for the restricting because restricting obviously affects your brain in a lot of different ways. And so I went in actually thinking that treatment would, would, that I would lose weight. And uh, I really actually do believe I've heard this from many people that a lot of people feel that way too. Just, I think it's when you're at the height of that kind of height of the, of the eating disorder itself, you're, you're just, it's hard, it's hard to think clearly and it's hard to think, you know, past 
the eating disorder. So I would say that that was one of the things that helped me get into it. So when I was actually in there and my weight stabilized at what it wanted to stabilize at, that was a roadblock in and of itself because it wasn't where I wanted it to where I assumed it would be. Because <laughs> I thought I was always going to go back to my high school weight still, even then at the beginning. Like I thought it was going to level out where I had been in high school and at 24, that's certainly not where it, where it, where it leveled out at and or or now at 30 and um that was the first kind of block i think the second big block once i was getting past that or once i once i accepted that while i was in treatment was the actual first getting out of treatment and i feel like it's something that nobody talks about but it's like you get out of treatment and there you are back in the world and like i had no hobbies <laughs> like i didn't know i had played piano for 15 years but i'd given it up over the last few years of my eating disorder because all I gave a crap about was counting calories and running X amount of miles. And so I think there's a huge vulnerability there that is really hard to manage in the beginning of feeling like even the basic skill sets of life and adulting, I didn't really know how to do. Like I had never cooked for myself. You know, like it was just all these basic things that I felt like all, all these humans around me knew how to do. I didn't know how to do. I hadn't really paid attention in school that much because I was already really sick throughout my college time. I partied a lot in college, so I wasn't really paying attention to the school. I took, you know, I took advantage of my my scholarship and wasn't I made fine grades, but I wasn't really participating in anything because again, all I cared about was like my eating and how much um, I, I knew the calorie count on every single thing and had no hobbies. <laughs> that was pretty mm-hmm. much what I felt like coming out of treatment. And that has taken, that's been something I still battle and I'm 30 years old now. It's this feeling of like inadequacy, I suppose is how I've described it and how others have, have said that they related of feeling like they're behind other people who maybe didn't have an eating disorder for as long as I did or for as long as they did. And just this constant feeling of trying to play catch up to other people <laughs> where they are. Cause at 24, I was, I felt behind in my career. I felt behind in this and that. And I still battle with that kind of insecurity. Sometimes my partner's an entrepreneur and he is just this badass who has started like three different companies and, you know, is, is very much in agricultural tech and he has this green thumb so he can grow food. He started a self-sustaining community in Panama. Like he's just this total badass. And I find myself like feeling inadequate, you know, it's something that comes up in our relationship is my defensiveness of feeling like all I have to show for my like early mid twenties is recover, like recovery, which is huge in and of itself. But I certainly wasn't starting a community in the jungle and like living off the land because I couldn't be farther than 10 feet from a gym. So it's like, I didn't have that kind of gumption back then. And so, yeah, it's, it's just that kind of stuff that I still think is, is probably one of the bigger blocks that, and of course, just the typical media still, I think we all, no matter how far along you are in recovery, there's always triggers of, of media, triggers of photoshopping and seeing other people, especially Instagram. You see all these Instagram people and influencers and you're like, what the hell? How did these people get their lives? <laughs> and, I'm over, you know, and I'm over here like, how do I get that? And uh, so I, I think that's just a human thing. But I would say those have been the two biggest recovery blocks, I suppose. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And, you know, media plays like, you know, like we talked about earlier with alcohol, media <laughs> plays such a big part in our lives and what we consume and what we allow ourselves to consume really affects us. So that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Kelsey and I had a recent episode where we talked about comparison. So, you know, having 
having that struggle too of, you know, you feel like because you went through these things that you are behind, it can be very difficult and you have to kind of remember and look at where you came from. So let's talk about that. Was there like a time like when you were in recovery that you were going through that, that you're like, man, like, this is it. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I see hope, like talk about that. Yeah, I th- I think there were several times. You know, I think it's a a cascading of moments of that kind of realization. Um, I would say one of the first times was was the first week of being in treatment when I was around women who had been living in and out of treatment centers for years. Basically, they were just in you know, and our country has a pretty piss poor way of managing crisis and and addiction, um, where it becomes a revolving door for many, many people. And they have desperate parents or desperate loved ones who are trying to get them the help that any help that they can get. And, uh, and, you know, not all treatment centers are, are run well, some are, some are run very well, some aren't. And so I was witnessing a lot of different women who had spent a majority of their early 20s in treatment of some sort was was kind of this eye-opening experience to be honest of being like wow I do not want to waste my life in here (laughs) like I don't want to be in here for the rest of my life in and out so I think that was a huge push I think there was a huge push that when I finally was able to deal with my best friend dying and really Mm -hmm. grieve openly there's this book by Martin Prichtel he was an Indian shaman and it's called grief and praise. And it's all about how grief and praise both live in intangibly, you know, together and how you can't have grief without praise and praise without grief. And he talked about how in the Mayan culture, the way that they grieve and not to get too far off the rails, but they grieve so openly and so loudly. And so with so much ability and space given to them by their communities to have grief. And when I was able to grieve again with counselors and therapists and even the women that I became close to while I was in treatment, I think that let out some of this big burden that I was holding on my shoulders that felt like I thought about my best friend every single day and couldn't talk about him after like the first couple months of him being gone because somehow it was taboo Mm -hmm. or or that I was making other people uncomfortable if I was talking about the pain of going through that. And so to grieve that out, a lot, you know, and I still grieve Bradley out. Like I love him. I talk about him openly, even still on my Instagram and my blog, because he was, he existed and he was alive and I don't have any reason to not mention him. He shaped a lot of my formative years, but to grieve, that was a huge recovery breakthrough as well. And to feel like, oh, okay, I'm not, nothing's wrong with me that I feel this way. Like, mm. and that I still cry over him, even though it's been now I'm 30 and I still cry over him sometimes. And it's been 12 years. Like I'll cry about him for the rest of my life because I wish he could be here. And so that was a big moment to have that kind of space given to me from clinicians and therapists and support. And I think another big moment, it's just all these little moments, right? It's again, like a cascading of little moments of awareness I think when I was finally out of the routine of restricting, once my stomach felt better, once I was eating normally and it wasn't just affecting my digestive tract, because, you know, once you start, when you've done all that stuff to your body, it just comes with immeasurable consequence. And so it's quite difficult to normalize your digestive system again and et cetera, et cetera. And once that was normalizing for me again, to just eat without having to think about it all the time 
slowly because you do you can't untrain your brain that quickly and and there's studies out there that say anorexia to untrain anorexia from the brain takes upwards of two years like almost any other addiction which takes quite a long time to to really redo if you're if you've depended on something every day and obsessively thought about it like opiate addiction and stuff it can take upwards of two years if not more for that gray matter and but to not have that to not have it plugging me at all hours and every minute of every day was such a relief that I, that was a breakthrough just in and of itself. The first time that I noticed that the first time I I woke up in the morning and was hungry again, all these little things like that. And it's just been one, you know, and once my blog started, of course, I think that community in and of itself really changed my life as well. I think once I started owning my story, and mm. letting it be out there because it started with a Facebook post. That's all I ever, that's how my whole thing started. I put a Facebook post saying I'd been in rehab and I just didn't feel like lying about it and omitting it anymore because I knew people were gossiping about it anyway from my high school and my college. And like, so I was like, you know what? Yeah, I've been in rehab. I'm sick and I'm getting better. And people like immediately flooded in being like, oh my God, I had an eating disorder. My sister has one, my brother, my mother, like I, you know, I, or, or people being like, I knew you were sick and I didn't know what to say. So it's like, mm. you think you're all sneaky, but people know. Like, yeah. That's yeah. And so once that all started, I think the transparency of it has, has, has definitely kept me in recovery over the years. I don't know what I would have done without that community. Yeah. I like how you stated that there's like literal like the cascade of little moments because it's the little glimmers of hope because like as you're speaking this and as you're telling this stuff, I can remember parts in it in my, in my story and my journey to where it was like just the one day where it was like, okay, this just got like a little bit better so I can keep holding on. And like so much of what you just said is incredible. It's really funny because we, the episode before this (laughs) is literally about owning your story and the and to find your purpose and the importance of owning your story and the community that that creates. So I love that you brought that up because it's something that's so impactful and I also love that you've talked about different parts of your story about like there was the eating disorder and then mm-hmm. there was like going through rehab and then it was this discovery of like okay, do I need to be sober? Like it's not just like oh, I went through the one hard thing and that's it. It's always like that self-discovery of like, how can I be better? Is there something else here? Mm -hmm. And like constant like challenges arising, but being able to be like, okay, I can conquer this thing one at a time. And also randomly, the book that you brought up, my sister is actually a shaman. So that's pretty funny. Oh, um, wow. Oh, that is, that's funny. Yeah. yeah you, you know, Martin Prechtel is amazing. He has a, he has a, Bullad's Kitchen in Utah, and I've never gone to it, but it's a huge, it's a huge thing. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to ask her. I'm sure. Yeah, she knows I wonder if she knows. Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, I just think I think it's it's so important that you like rounded that out with like talking about you know community and with people, and I resonate like your story about the grief resonates a lot with me too because I had a boyfriend that died when I was 16, and it's just like you said, it's like people just expect you to just like be okay. And you have zero tools in how to handle that kind of something that, that impacts you so greatly. And you're just expected to just like suppress and then numb. So of course it comes like for me, it was drugs and alcohol. And for you, obviously the acceleration of the eating disorder and then whatever else, it's interesting how, you know, 
I feel like we're society is getting better and just the basic understanding of we have to be able to express our feelings. I also think, yeah, and I totally agree with you on, on all those points. And also the, when you go through tragedy at that age, at 16, 17, 18, there's such formative years in your adolescence that to not take for, for that not to be taken really, really carefully on how to, to navigate trauma like that is it's so imperative and i and i don't blame my parents i, I my parents did the best they could because um, right. they're a product of their families and they're a product of, of a generation our grandparents generation that really didn't talk about their feelings or talk about coming back with ptsd from wars and, and etc and like and my parents did the best they could but yeah i think it's it's extremely important in those formative years that like if you go through some trauma it has to be taken with a lot of delicacy and to be shoved back into a college like like party atmosphere did not work for me. I, I really, looking back, wish I had taken the time to get the help that I needed. And instead, I just, I was screaming it with by restricting. I didn't know how else to say I was in pain. Mm-hmm. And that's really all it came down to is that I needed so I wanted to, all I wanted to say was like, I'm in pain. Like I'm sad every day mm-hmm. and I don't life no longer makes sense because you kind of lose your innocence when shit like that happens at that age. Um, and I lost my innocence the day that Bradley died and to lose it was so jarring and to, and to be especially a freshman in college and have all these people partying and having this like social, you know, it's very social in the beginning of university. And, and I wanted to make all these friends and I was very much from the South, which is also very, you know, Debutante South is very appear like very heavy on appearances. I kind of grew up in a world, an affluent world of people. Um, so I, I walked into an atmosphere that was just that was not conducive to grieving <laughs> at 18 years old. And and now looking back, it seems very obvious how it all manifested and happened at that time. So if you could go back, you know, talking about, you know, looking back and seeing like so obviously those things that, you know, were an issue, like if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? That's a good question. I've, my answer changes to that, feel, depending on my feeling of the day, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I wish I could go back and honestly just enjoy those years a little bit more and to get to be a little bit easier on myself. I was just outrageously hard on myself for years, you know, to be beautiful or to be attractive to men, especially in my sexuality. I've dated men and women. Um, mm-hmm. And so that didn't really come out for me until I was later in life, until I was 24 and really in treatment. Um, but that was kind of a suppressed feeling for a long, for a while. And I think all of that was just it's so hard to be young in general <laughs> and that it was just, I, I was just so hard on myself. And that's what I would say. My younger self is like, calm down. Like you only get that time in your life once. And that's what I really, really miss. I really, really regret. And I think it's okay to live with regret is what my feeling is at this point in my life. I think regret helped fuel some of my recovery because I, I'm really sad that I missed a lot of those years. Would I redo them now? No, I I, I wouldn't want to be a twenty-one-year-old ever again. <laughs> but but I like Very being sweet. thirty. Yeah, I like being thirty. I feel a little bit more confident than I did, you know, certainly at twenty and twenty-one. But I wish I had enjoyed those years while I had them and shown up 
to them and been a little bit more present because you have these tight knit friendships at that age, right? Like if you, if you're you have the, these friends and you have all this exploration, you're in, and there's so much unknown that's going to happen in your life. And I wish I had appreciated that kind of that kind of time period, I suppose, a bit more. But I was too nervous. I was so scared about like, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be when this is all over? Like, you know, am I going to stay thin? Am I going to be this? Like, it was just so it was such a like flustering time. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody kind of goes through that. And so, you know, some mm-hmm. of us a lot more than others is, you know, who am I? And that self-discovery on trying to figure out who you are. But something that I think is really important that you said is, you know, yeah, I do regret that, but I, you know, I wouldn't relive those years. I wouldn't take them back, you know? So I think a lot of times, and I, you know, I resonate with that. People say it's not okay to have regrets. You, you shouldn't regret anything in your life. You live with no regrets, doesn't matter. But I think it's important to be able to look back at those things and say, yeah, do I wish that those things were different? Do I wish that maybe I could change some of those things? I mean, yeah, I mean, people make mistakes, right? Um, But to not take back those lessons that you learned from them, right? You know, do you you wish that you got through it easier? Of course, everybody wishes that. Um, But the lessons that you get from that are so important. So that really resonated with me. Yeah, I think there's a difference between like regret and like shame, you know, and like, I don't have shame anymore over that part of my life. It just is what it is. But yeah, the regret of missing it and not showing up to it really present and really fully able to embrace that time period. That's what I regret. And that's, there's no shame around it. It's just that that's what fuels me now to be like, hey, I want to live this life. So when I'm in Costa Rica last week at Envision Festival, my eyes are wide open and I'm ready and ready to be there and ready to take it all in and to have these deep conversations on the beach at four in the morning with like random strangers and have that kind of connection and be with a group of friends and really look at these people and think to myself, like, I'm so glad I'm alive right now. Like in this moment, I am glad to be here and I'm thankful that I am here. And that's, that's living to me. Like that feels alive for me. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That sense of community that, you know, you talked about earlier is so important. And something you said earlier was, you know, yes, I have gone through treatment and program for an eating disorder, but I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life. And, you know, you talked about how community is one of the things that's helped you deal with those struggles. So what are some of the other things that, you know, you can utilize some of the tools that you use to deal with those struggles today? Yeah, I think that's a good question because I'm really, I feel like in this second round, as I'm calling it, of like the recovery process, <laughs> um, it's really been quitting alcohol that's like helped me kind of starting to actually establish some some, some tools. Um, yoga, and I I used to think it was so cliche. I'd be like, oh God, yogi people. Like, and I'd be like, <laughs> I, like I really did. Like it would annoy me because everyone in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I live, everyone does yoga here. Like it is, it is a yogi town. And, um, but starting yoga has been really transformational in a lot of ways. And that's been super helpful meditation. Even if it's just for five minutes, I am not a long meditator. I do not, I haven't conquered that level of meditation yet, but five minutes a day has been very helpful kind of like establishing a routine where I feel good about myself. And like, this sounds so lame, but like flossing every day has like, it like builds my confidence. Um, (laughs) when you start, you know what I mean? Like when you start like, like doing self-care for real self-care, not like 
hashtag self-care. Like when you actually, for Mm. you, start doing things that make you feel better about how you're living, it like just starts piling on top of itself. And so like for me, for whatever reason, flossing every night helps me feel better about myself. (laughs) And then then it gets me to the morning when I wake up and I light candles every morning because that feels like self-care. I don't get on my phone for the first hour of my morning so that I can like write out my intentions for the day and like express gratitude every single morning for three different things. I don't care. Some mornings it's like hard to figure out what I'm grateful for. So I'm like, I'm grateful that record players exist because I enjoy (laughs) the music that comes out of them. (laughs) Yes. The small things. Absolutely. Or that like my pillow feels good. (laughs) And, and those, those, I think that it just starts escalating, like it starts building on itself. And that's, and now I'm in this really cool self-care routine. Um, it, it definitely gets thrown off when I go to Costa Rica for a week. And I certainly have to like not get too perfectionist about it and be like, I didn't floss every day of my Costa Rica. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't light my candles. Yeah, I, and I couldn't even, yeah, I actually, because I was like fighting myself, like literally having anxiety before I went to Costa Rica because I couldn't bring my candles. And we were camping in the jungle with like porta potties for like the whole week. So I wasn't oh flossing God. the whole time. And I was like, I'm going to lose it all. I'm just going to come back and be like a hot mess and like not. And I was like, okay, Lindsay, calm down. Like, this is part of being alive <laughs> is being able to be like flexible in the realm of like feeling alive. And for me, that's travel. And I wanted to do envision. So I did it. And now I'm like easing back into my self-care routine. (laughs) I love that though. You know, those small steps that you take and, you know, just something as small as flossing, you know, makes a big difference because it does. You're right. It absolutely. And Kelsey and I are smiling because we literally just recorded this last podcast. We were talking about those small habits that you do to tackle the hard things. Right. So like it's in self-care, Hashtag self-care. Uh, you know, I, I love the idea, but you know, sometimes people think self-care has to be like, I'm going to get a massage. I'm going to go yeah. buy this $200 coach purse. And really, it's just about taking care of yourself and your mental health and taking you know, the time to sit back and reflect and what do I really need? What am I not giving myself now that I need? So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, well, and it's been so for me over the last few months. My whole life has changed over the last few months because I've quit drinking. I really do attribute it to because I've quit drinking and started establishing more of a routine in my life with some of these things. Like I'm now finally fully transitioning to working freelance completely instead of working at a traditional nine to five. Um, which has been my goal for so long is that I've I've been too scared and I think too stuck in some of my routine to do it. And now that I'm clear headed again, it's leaving so much time at night for me to brainstorm freelance opportunities and partnership ops and this kind, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's giving me the space and the clarity to like brainstorm at night and like sit there and think about how could I partner with this company or, or how could I write for this company or do this and this and then get the like gumption to actually reach out and be like, hey, um, we know each other through the eating disorder community. Like, have you thought about partnering? Here's some ideas I have, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just finding it's like all like, escalating and and I'm finally starting to like have a life that I was wanting five years ago (laughs) and was just kind of like kept dreaming about having and and I really do attribute that to I think quitting drinking has been super helpful in that and kind of moving into the second phase of recovery of like having a good self-care routine. 
Yeah, I think I'm so, I'm like just loving all of this. You're saying so many things that I'm like, yep, that's exactly <laughs> what I say. So, but like just the, you know, touching on, on the self-care a little bit, I think it's, it's, it, it can be the $200 purse, but most of the time, I think that some of the stuff we say is self-care just because that's what we see. And I think self-care is more about self-awareness and checking in with ourselves. Like, where am I? Am I empty? Am I full? Do I need to like just go outside for a walk real quick so I can breathe? Like it doesn't have to look, I think that's the thing we have to break is it doesn't have to look any certain way. It just needs to come from something that's within you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's just the little things. Cause like buying, like I, I do acupuncture once every couple weeks now mm-hmm. and acupuncture is great. And I'm really glad I'm doing it. It's also expensive as hell. And it's not something that I can actively continue to do depending on like my clients, you know, depending on what I have financially going on. So I can't rely on like expensive stuff right now as I'm Mm -hmm. making these transitions. It has to come from like being able to watch a YouTube video (laughs) and like of yoga and be able to like do my yoga that way instead of paying like X amount of money to go to a yoga studio. Yeah. Acupuncture is amazing. It's funny. I did uh, acupuncture when I was pregnant with my second child. So I have a a three and a half year old and an 18 month old. And um, when I was pregnant with her, I was having a home birth and she was breech. And so I went to acupuncture and it flipped her and I had my home birth and it was the best experience of my life. But so like wrapping up here, I just want to say thank you so much for being here and for sharing. You said so much stuff that is amazing. That's so in line with like so much that Mindy and I say. So it's cool to hear your journey and just kind of how like the pieces come together like that. So tell everybody listening, like where can they read your blog? Where can they find out more about you? Yeah. So my blog is, uh, I haven't shaved in six weeks.com. <laughs> um, I also have uh, Instagram at Lindsay Hall writes L I N D S E Y Hall H A L L writes W R I T E S. Um, and I've launched my second website, which is for more of my personal writing, which is a big goal of mine that I've also just recently done in the last few months now that I've quit drinking. <laughs> and it's called lindsayhallwrites.com. Uh, and that's where my more of my personal writing is, whereas the I haven't shaved in six weeks is all my recovery writing. Awesome. Um, so any of those places. And then obviously on email, I'm always available at lindsayhallblog at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. And thank you guys so much for having me on here. What you guys are doing is really needed. And this kind of podcast is is the exact type of podcast that people like, I think are craving and they're trying to find and it's hard to find. Thank you for coming on and being so honest and open. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thank you so, so much for listening today. This has been amazing. And Mindy, what are we talking about next week? So in episode 15, we are talking about overcoming overwhelm, um, using time management and skills there to make your life a little bit less overwhelming. Oh, yeah. I love me some time management. All right, guys. Well, make sure that you subscribe to get all of our latest episodes. Again, Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Drop us a rating, a review, send us an email. Mindy and I are always open on our email or the DMs on Instagram. We are here if you need support in anything that you're trying to achieve. And uh, don't forget to live bravely today.
If you are a CEO or entrepreneur, I want to invite you into a space that's unlike anything out there. CEO Power Hour is a free monthly live experience that you can join in person or virtually to get your questions answered to fulfill the desires for your business. Inside this room, you bring your biggest goal, the obstacles you are experiencing, or anything you want my expertise, eyes, and ears on. This guidance, along with the ideas and inspiration from other powerful women, allows you to be fully immersed in the energy of being supported and learn in a completely new way so that you can expand your business and your life to the next level. I created CEO Power Hour to bring together powerful business owners for connection, collaboration, and coaching. This is your invitation, and it's free. The link is in the show notes, so I hope to see you at our next monthly meeting.